How are you guys? I'm going to guess you're pretty tired because uh, how many people have been watching the Olympics like every night? Even though you know what's going to happen, you watch them until the very end. Anyone? Is anyone an American here? <laughs> yes, we have some American people. That's great. I know, I've been watching the Olympics a ton. I love it. Uh, it's inspiring. It's almost inspiring me to get back into shape. Not really, but it's, uh, it's fun watching the Olympics. My Olympics, so to speak, came to a close uh, yesterday because the swimming portion is over. So whatever else happens, you know, that will be good. But uh, it's been a lot of fun uh, watching the Olympics. Back in our Genesis kids today, uh, our kids are having their own version of the Olympics. So uh, excited for what uh, our Genesis kids workers have put together uh, for them. Uh, today is part five in our series in uh, Colossians, and it's been a great series. Uh, Jeremy uh, Alexander was preaching here last week and did a phenomenal job. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to listen to uh, that message in Colossians, the first ten verses in chapter two. Uh, this week, we're looking at uh, the rest of uh, Colossians chapter two, so if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and flip there. Um, really, uh, this has been mentioned every time, but uh, it's worth saying again. Uh, before I say that, if you haven't gotten a copy of this book, uh, it is super helpful, uh, challenging, encouraging, inspiring, convicting. Uh, Tullian Chavingen wrote this book as kind of a, a parallel, so to speak, in his study of Colossians. Uh, we've only got a handful. I think we bought initially about 60 or 70, and there's only about uh, six or seven left. So pick up a copy of this. Uh, it's been super helpful for my study of Colossians. Uh, the two questions that uh, we have been asking uh, throughout this series in Colossians is, what do we learn about Jesus, and how do we apply what we're learning about Jesus to how we live? And as I've been thinking about uh, those two questions in particular, these are not just questions for Colossians. These are really questions that should be really driving our, our lives, our day-to-day -day living of, what have I learned about Jesus, and how am I applying what I've learned to how I'm living today? to the people that I'm going to see, to the conversations that I'm going to, to the work I'm going to par participate in today. So what is it I know? What is it I'm learning about Jesus? And how am I applying Jesus and what I've learned about Jesus and who he is and what he's like to how I'm living? Uh, our heart in this whole series has been to get us to the point, to the conclusion, to the, really the conviction that if I have Jesus, I have everything. If I know Jesus, I have a relationship with Jesus, I have absolutely everything I need in life now and life eternal. Uh, Tolian Chavinjan has uh, quoted this a few weeks back, but he simply says, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Our heart in this entire Colossians series would be that that would be true of us, that we would not just agree with that theologically, but we would live that out of, if I have Jesus, I have relation, I have absolutely everything that I need. And if I don't have Jesus, wow, I, I've got nothing. I've got absolutely nothing. But with Jesus, I have absolutely everything. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground in chapter uh, 2 today. Uh, and really kind of at the heart of where we're headed in chapter 2 is just kind of a simple, but I think a profound thought that if you know Jesus, if you have a relationship with Jesus, uh, your life will look radically different. Not could look radically different or should look radically different, but if you have a relationship with God, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, your life will look radically different. 
Now, let me ask a question to kind of set up where we're headed in chapter 2. And the question would just simply be this. Do you remember what your life was like before you actually met Jesus? Do you remember what your life, what it was like? Uh, And I'm not just talking about like where you lived geographically or what job you had. But do you remember what you were like uh, before you came into relationship with Jesus? Now, I realize that not everyone here today would say, well, I don't even have a relationship with Jesus. I'm trying to figure things out. I'm asking questions. I'm seeking. I'm, I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to learn. So in many ways, that question might not apply to you, but the question would just simply be then, well, what does your life look like today? And again, now what's your relationship status? And, you know, do you have a house? Do you rent? Do you, do you work? But is your life, as you currently are living it, is it a life that's actually marked by things like peace, contentment, joy, uh, gratitude, purpose, meaning? Or is it really just a life that's kind of marked by frustration, this constant state of feeling blah, this, this state of just, also I'm, I'm just trying to get through the day, I'm just trying to get through the week, I'm just trying to get through this month. Now my point in that is just, if you know Jesus, your life is going to look different. And it's not going to be marked by those things. It's actually going to be marked by a life of purpose and meaning and contentment and joy and peace and gratitude, purpose. So if you do know Jesus, then go back to you. Do you remember what it was like before you had a relationship with Jesus? What your life was like? What your life was was marked by? Now, I've asked this question before just of other people that I'm getting to know and and just kind of hearing their story. And one common thing that I've heard before is this. Well, life was great. Before I met Jesus, life was great because I could do whatever I wanted to do and I didn't feel bad about it. I could just totally do my own thing, which generally meant I could be as self-centered and selfish and I could party and I could do all those things and I, I just didn't feel bad about it. I just, I didn't care about it. But now that I have a relationship with Jesus, I just feel guilty all the time. Now, I'm not going to open up this entire can right here, but my quick response is people who, who say that are really two things. You're, they are quick to forget the emptiness of it all. They're, they're quick to forget the emptiness of all those things that they're chasing and pursuing of how empty it left them feeling because they just kept going back and going back for more. Not because it filled, but because it didn't fill. And I'd also say, currently, if that's how... They're, uh, they're answering the question of what life was like. I used to have fun, but now I just feel guilty. You just have a really wrong view of what Jesus is really like. Your view is more of he's a cosmic cop and this cosmic wet blanket that he's just trying to ruin my life. And that's, that's clearly not who Jesus is. So that's one response I've heard from people uh, numerous times. And I think this might actually be a little bit more true of most people here is, Michael, that's a great question of what was my life like before I met Jesus, but I honestly don't remember. I don't remember a time where I didn't know Jesus. I don't really remember a time when I wasn't going to church. I don't really remember a time where I wasn't like thinking about the things of God. And you don't have those memories because you've been either a Christian for so long or at least in and around Christianity for so long, you've forgotten what life was like before you met Jesus. And in many ways, as I was thinking about it, It's kind of my story. I grew up in the church. Uh, I became a Christian at a very, very young age. But one of the things that I remember 
is uh, I always remember in, in middle school, high school, even in early college years into my early 20s, I, I, I was the guy that really wanted to make my life matter. I really wanted to have a life that meant something, that would make a difference. I couldn't articulate how or what that would look like, but I wanted a life that, that made, it made sense, it made a difference, that would make an impact at least on somebody. And I remember in high school, especially college years, I, I just always felt falling short of that. I just always had this constant state of just feeling lost. I'd chase this and pursue that and do this, and I just always had this sense of lostness, as it were. And then it was in my early 20s where I really started understanding Jesus and what it really meant to have a relationship with Jesus, and that lostness was gone. Now, you might not remember all of the details of what your life was like before Christ, before you met Jesus, but I hope as you're sitting here today, and if you're a Christian, you could honestly say, because of Jesus, my life is different. I don't remember all of the details, but I do know this. I do remember this. Because of Jesus, my life is different. My life is, and hopefully you'd be able to articulate how it is different and what impact or the difference that Jesus is making. Now, why is it different? Now, Jeremy highlighted and talked about this verse as he closed his message last week, but it says in Colossians 2, verse 9 and 10, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. If that's true, and I believe it to be true, if that is true that all of Christ, all of God is dwelling in Christ, that Christ is God, and Christ is dwelling in me, all of Christ in all of me, all of the time, don't you think that life would look different? If you had all of Jesus, who is God in flesh, living in you by his Spirit, one would think, well, my life is going to look a little bit different. Not that it could look different or should look different, but that it will look different. And so the three things that I'm going to highlight or focus on today of what we learn about Jesus really just comes under the simple truth uh, that Jesus is, is radically going to change your life. Your life will be different because of him. Uh, now, we're going to cover a lot of ground, and like I mentioned, we're going to highlight, we're going to focus on three things that we learn about Jesus, and all three things point to this one overarching theme or truth that our lives will look different because of Jesus and who he is and what he's done and what he's accomplished in our lives. So number one is, is going to be this. Number one, Jesus is our transformation. Jesus is the one who transforms us. I don't transform myself. I don't read self-help books and make myself a better person. Jesus is the one who transforms us. Paul says this in Colossians 2, I'll start at verse 11. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, I realize if you just read those two verses, it would seem incredibly odd. What? Circumcision? What does circumcision have to do with my relationship with Jesus and what Jesus has done in my life? If you're going to sum up just those two verses, at the heart of what Paul is, just is saying is 
It wasn't you. It was all Jesus. It wasn't something that we did. It was something that Jesus has done for us that is leading to our transformation. I get that it might sound odd that Paul brings up the practice of circumcision, but to the first century audience, uh, which was reading uh, this letter, uh, circumcision would make total sense. Circumcision was a sign. It was a seal of the promise or the covenant that God had made with the entire nation of Israel, initially with Abraham. And so when they would consider circumcision, it was just an outward sign. It was an outward seal uh, of God's promise, God's covenant uh, to them. But what Paul is talking about is he's using circumcision metaphorically here. He's not talking about an actual physical cutting of a male part. He's talking literally or metaphorically uh, about a spiritual cutting that comes place, uh, that happens when we come to Christ. So again, it might sound odd to be talking about circumcision, but what, what Paul is talking about is a metaphor here of not a physical act, but a spiritual cutting that takes place when we come to Christ. Read verse 11 again. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ. In other words, Christ did for us what no one else could do for us. He transformed us. Literally through his death, through his resurrection, he put to death our sinful nature. So if you're a Christian, when you came to Christ, what Christ has done is literally cut away, circumcised, a spiritual cutting of our sinful nature. I like how um, pastor, author, commentator Sam Storm said it like this. It's not by human hands, whether our effort, good intentions, or reformed life, but by the Spirit of God that our hearts have been circumcised and renewed and regenerated unto life eternal. So what Christ has done is he's literally cut us, cut what was separating us from God, our sin, our sinful nature, away. We could not do that on our own, and this is exactly what Christ uh, has done. Uh, when we come to Christ, this is what Jesus does for us. Now, Paul switches metaphors here from circumcision to the metaphor or the picture uh, of baptism, uh, and he says this in, in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, again, a different metaphor here, a picture that Paul is, is presenting to Colossians, to us, is that when we come to Christ, something amazing happens. There is a spiritual cutting of our sinful nature. And then he uses the illustration of baptism uh, to illustrate for us how many people have, have been baptized here. Okay? If you haven't, we're doing our baptism service coming up in September. It's probably my favorite service of the year called Get Drenched. And we always do it in an outdoor beach service. And uh, here are some pictures of, uh, I didn't ask Kyra, he's not here, so it's okay, uh, to show these pictures. But uh, this is Kyra Kluet. And this is the picture and the metaphor that Paul is using here of literally when you go down underwater, it is symbolic that you have died. You have died with Christ. And he goes down underwater. I hold him down for, he's not all the way down yet, but he's going to be under there for 15, 20 seconds. Um, and then he, this beautiful picture of when he comes back up. Kyer could not come back up on his own. Someone else, in this picture me, is lifting him back up. And this is the picture 
of we are dead in our sin. We've died. But because of Christ and Christ's resurrection, Christ is the one who literally raises us back to newness of life. It's another way of saying Christ is the one who literally has transformed us. I want to be clear, baptism doesn't save anyone. <clears throat> Paul is just saying this is a great picture, <coughs> uh, a great symbol, uh, external symbol of an internal reality. It's a great way to think about it. I'm literally going down, dying to self, dying to sin, and Christ is the one who is raising me back up to newness of life, to a transformed life. Paul actually says it like this in Romans. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. This is the picture that he's using of circumcision, that Christ has literally cut our sinful nature away. And in baptism, we've died with him and we've been raised back to newness of life. Now, the question, Jeremy, can you get me some water, please? <coughs> I've been <coughs> running a cold all week, so I apologize. <coughs> um, the question I wanted to ask <coughs> is this. If Christ has done that, if he is literally, our sinful nature has been cut, we've been dead, but Christ has raised us to newness of life, then why on earth do I keep sinning? Why on earth, if that's true, and Christ has done that, a circumcised heart, flesh, like spiritually speaking, cut, thanks Jeremy, uh, then why do I continue to sin? Why do I continue to rebel against God? Uh, I'm going to give you just a few thoughts on, on this. Number one would simply be this. Why do we continue to sin? Well, we continue to fight flesh with flesh. We continue to fight flesh with flesh rather than relying on the strength that God has given us in Christ, Christ in us, we continue to fight sin in our flesh, in our own strength, rather than relying on God's grace. This is a quote from John Piper that has been super helpful and, and challenging to me. It says this, Grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. I think sometimes we look at grace as, well, that's what I get, you know, after I confess and ask for forgiveness, God gives me his grace. But we don't use that same grace, the same grace that was powerful enough to forgive us for our sins to help us fight sin. So we fight flesh with flesh. That's one reason why we continue just to sin is we're not using the gift that God has given us in his grace to battle sin. Number two is we seek to remove sin, but we fail to replace it. Not with other sin, but we fail to replace it with a new affection. Uh, I remember sharing this and, and really learning, most, uh, learning about this in our, our series in Romans, uh, but Thomas Chalmers said this, the only way to dispose the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. So many of us, we're like, I got to stop sinning, I got to stop sinning, I got to stop sinning. But we might stop sinning, but we don't start doing something new. And in time our heart just gravitates back towards that same old sin. So number two is we seek to remove sin, but if you don't replace it with a new affection, a new affection for, for God, his word, his church, his people, serving, pray, whatever the affection would be, 
you'll gravitate quickly back towards that same sin. Uh, number three is, I think this is probably the most powerful one, is we simply, we just forget the cross. Why do we continue to sin? Well, we don't live with the cross in our vision, in, in our view, as it were. I like how Charles Spurgeon said it when he said, sin murdered Christ. Will you be a friend to it? <clears throat> sin pierced the heart of the incarnate, incarnate God. <clears throat> Can you love it? Like, how could we continue to love that which put Christ on the cross, which was our sin? And as I look at the cross, and I'm not talking about literally coming to church every day and staring at the cross. I'm talking about remembering Jesus, remembering the gospel, what Christ has done. The more I consider, the more I remember what Christ has done, sin is, is just not that attractive because it reminds me of my sin put him there. When we forget what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, we quickly will just turn back to that which put him there. First thing that I'm seeing in, in just these first few verses is Jesus is our transformation. Jesus is the one who transforms us. I don't transform myself. Jesus literally is cutting, cuts my sinful nature away. The second thing that we learn about Jesus, and I just love this, is Jesus is the one that makes us alive. Jesus transforms us. Number two, Jesus is the one that makes us alive. I'm going to read these verses really slow because I want you to take in, uh, these are probably... Two favorite, three favorite verses in all of Colossians. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, meaning we hadn't been cut, that sinful nature had not been cut away, God made you alive with Christ. Not you, it was God who made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Just consider that for a second. That all of your sins, past, present, future, all of your sins have been completely forgiven. Isn't that amazing? That God made you alive. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them tri triumphing triumphing over them <coughs> by the cross. It's amazing what God has done for us. When we were literally dead, we couldn't do anything on our own, God did something for us in Christ. He made us alive, forgave us all of our sins. Again, I, I quote Sam Storms. He says this, God made us alive together with Christ. Were ever more precious words uttered, spiritually lifeless, morally decayed, in every way insensible to the beauty and sweetness of Jesus, until God, in sovereign mercy and grace, made us alive together with His Son. So amazing what God has done for us. Dead in our sin, hearts uncircumcised, not yet cut, but God in Christ does that. He makes us alive and forgives us. Now, you don't have to raise your hands on this question, but uh, you ever experience what it's like to be in debt? Right? I'm going to guess that most of us have either currently there or have experienced 
the weight of what it feels like, or just not feels like, but the reality of just having debt, whether it's credit card debt, maybe it's the mortgage, maybe it's a, a school loan, maybe it's a car loan, and you feel the weight of that debt. Can you imagine what it would be like to be completely debt-free? Can you imagine the day where you have no debt outstanding, everything has been paid off, no mortgage, no car payment, no school loan, no credit card loan, no money to your friends, you know, you paid it all back. You are a completely debt-free person. I would venture to say you would probably celebrate. Don't celebrate too much to go get yourself back in debt, but that would be an amazing thing, right? Can you imagine, conversely, what it would be like to have so much debt that you know that there is no way, the debt is so great, it's so big, that you'll never get out from it. The credit card, it's just too big, it's grown beyond, it's crazy. The school loans, you took out a hundred grand because at the time it seemed like a good idea. And now you're a hundred grand in debt and you've got no way to pay it back off because the job you have is not paying you that kind of money. Can you imagine what it would feel like? You know, no matter what I do, I will never be out of debt. That would be depressing. That would be so discouraging to know I'll never be debt free. Such was our reality with God until Jesus paid it all. This was our reality. We had such an incredible debt to God that we could never pay back on our own. And that's what Jesus did. He literally took our, our debt and he paid it all. The word cancel means that God literally wiped the slate clean. All sins forgiven, all debts paid. Isaiah says it like this, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions or your sins for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Je Jesus did it. He paid that debt we could never pay on our own. Now, I want to be clear, God's attitude was not like, hey, don't worry about it, no big deal. I'll, I got you covered. It, his attitude was not that cavalier towards a debt that needed to be paid. His attitude was, my son is giving his life for you in your place so you do not have to pay the debt that is yours. What you owed, I put on my son. So his attitude was not nonchalant, don't worry about it, no big deal. His son paid our debt. Jesus paid it all. Now, is this amazing news to you? Like, when you hear this, and I'm guessing for some of you, you've heard this. This is not new news. But is this amazing news to you? Like, do you hear, my goodness, I had such a debt before God and Jesus paid it all. Now, who would celebrate more? The guy who, say you come in today and, like, Michael, I got $1,000 debt. I'm like, I got you covered. Here's $1,000. You are now debt free. I'm assuming that guy would be like, wow, this is a pretty cool church. What if someone walked in and said, you know, Michael, can you pray for me? I, I got $100,000 worth of debt. School, credit card, car, you know, all of it. And I said, hey, you know what? We're a pretty cool church. And uh, let me get the church checkbook for you. And we covered that debt. Who do you think would be more excited? Who do you think would be more fired up leaving church that day? The guy who had a $1,000 debt paid off 
or the guy who had a $100,000 debt paid off. I think you get the point. Probably the guy who got the hundred grand paid off because he felt the weight, he felt the gravity of how much debt he had. My point in that illustration is if we don't get how great our debt was, we will not appreciate, we will not be in awe and wonder of exactly what Jesus has done when we, when we sing songs like Jesus paid it all. It will just be words. This is what the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. That's it. It's not just a physical death, it's a spiritual death. Our debt, our sin, is the consequence the debt to be paid is a spiritual death, a spiritual separation from God. It says in Ephesians, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Okay, so if Jesus does not do something, if God does not act on our behalf, we are dead in our sins. And I want to be super crystal clear. Dead means we are separated from God in eternity, in hell, paying the penalty of our sin. When I feel that, it's then when I can say, wow, what an amazing thing that he did for me. When I catch the gravity of where I would have been for an eternity, not just for like a week, not for like a year, but for an eternity separated from God in a literal place called hell, paying the punishment, penalty of my sin, But Colossians 3, you were dead, but God made you alive. God took you who were dead and made you alive. All of your sins, that debt, completely paid. Nailed to the cross of Christ. I'm going to finish the back half of uh, Romans 6 and Ephesians 2. It says, but the gift of God is eternal life. It goes on in Ephesians, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we are dead in our sins or transgressions. It's by grace that you've been saved. I'll ask it again. Is it amazing that Jesus has made you alive? And to be made alive means that our sins have been forgiven. Despite being our spiritual state of deadness, Jesus makes us alive. Despite our massive debt of sin, Christ completely paid it. Despite our spiritual forces that were literally against us, Jesus conquered those. I hope that you just don't hear this and be like, ah, I get it. It's cool. I hope that you hear that. And you're like, this is, he did that? You mean I don't have to live in eternity in hell apart from God? Because of what Jesus has done? See, what that does in me, it stirs in me a life of just gratitude. Not trying to pay God back, but living a life of expressing love to Him. Not to get something more from Him, because He's already given me everything in Christ. Our debt was huge. Our debt was huge. Unpayable on our own. But Jesus, in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, He pays it. He paid it all. That's the second thing. Jesus is our transformation. Number two, Jesus is the one that makes us alive. I like how Tullian said it, actually. He says, from deadness to aliveness and from saturation and trespass to immersion and forgiveness, that's our journey in the gospel. 
from deadness to aliveness, from saturation and trespass to immersion and forgiveness. This is our journey. This is the gospel. Now, I'm going to finish off, uh, going to do this relatively uh, pretty quickly, but if Jesus has done all of this, not because of something that we have done, but just because of God's grace, because of God's mercy, because of God's forgiveness, uh, then it shouldn't leave us in a state of confusion as to, well, who do I follow in life? If I really believe that Jesus has done this, all of this, paid it all, then there should not be any thought, any confusion about who I am now living my life for or who I am following in life. And this is the third thing I want us to see. We'll finish with this is Jesus is the one we follow. Jesus is the one we follow. Now, it's really an interesting turn uh, in these next eight verses in, in, Romans, or in uh, Colossians uh, chapter 2. Paul has been expressing all of this by the grace of God, by the grace of God, by the grace of God. He's done this, paid it all, forgiven all, debts paid. But Paul knows that whenever there is a message, a proclamation, a declaration of grace, do you know what always follows grace? Legalism. Anytime there, there's someone is preaching a message, proclaiming a message of grace, there is always going to be, in its wake, legalism. Again, this is Sam Storms ask, a, answering the question of, why does legalism always follow grace? And he says this, Human nature will rise up in protest and try to sneak in somewhere a rule or a regulation that we, in our strength, can fulfill, or an observance or ritual that we, without God's enabling power, can perform that will enhance our spiritual standing or gain some reward that will put God in our debt. There's something in us that it's, I want that grace, but I also want to do something to participate to say, well, he's doing that because I did this. God is responding to a really a good life, a moral life, a religious life, a spiritual life, whatever it might be. And this is what Paul speaks against. Actually, he's very adamant against what's happening in the Colossian church. In light of what Jesus has done, now teachers are coming in saying, yes, Jesus has done that, but you need to add to what Jesus has done in these things. And we'll read eight verses here. <coughs> Hopefully. <coughs> Excuse me. Therefore, verse 16, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to religious festival or new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. Verse 19, he has lost connection with the head, Jesus, from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, 
Why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Why do you, if you've died, why do you submit to its rules? Verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He's quoting them. Verse 22, these are all destined to perish with, um, with us because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining the flesh or sensual indulgence. Now, obviously, you could take weeks to unpack all of those eight verses. At the heart, and what I'm trying to get at is what Paul is trying to tell these people, ultimately is trying to tell us, is he's dealing what I would just call a death blow to the heart of legalism. Where there is grace, there is there's always the legalist in us, around us, that will follow. Now let me ask you this question. Can you imagine growing up always hearing the message that in order to be made right with God, in order for God to love you, in order for God to be pleased with you, you had to do A, B, and C. And you had to make sure that you didn't do like X, Y, and Z. Your entire life, that's the message that you've heard that was literally ingrained in you, that you have to do this, you have to do this, you can't do that, you can't go here, you can't listen to that, you can't dress this way. You have to go to this kind of church. You have to read this kind of a Bible. And when you do this and you do that and you don't do that, wow, God's pleased with you. God loves you and you're growing in relationship with God. Why? Because of all of these rules and regulations and restrictions and traditions that you're following. Now, can you imagine if that was your reality? If you grew up, that's all you ever heard. Now, I'm asking that question because I think that was actually reality for most people here. As you grew up in whatever background or setting, but there was this message, whether it was just blatant as that, or this undercurrent message that, yes, it's Jesus, but there's some rules you have to abide by. There's some restrictions that, you know, you've got to be careful. There's, there's certain customs, there's certain traditions that you have to adhere to, and if you don't, be careful. God's not going to be pleased with you. You'll, you'll fall out of favor with God if you don't follow rules, restrictions, regulations, traditions. It's not a shock that it's so hard for us to accept the message of the gospel. That it, it's, it's just Jesus, that's it. It's not Jesus plus what I add to it. It's not Jesus plus what I do. It's not a surprise that it is so hard for us to embrace the message that it's, it's Jesus plus nothing equals absolutely everything. It's not Jesus plus you following your rule, your tradition, your regulations, your codes, whatever they might be. It's Jesus plus nothing. Some would say, well, it can't be that easy. It just can't be that easy. And that's why we come up with all sorts of rules and regulations because how could it just be look to Jesus and that's it? I've got to do something else. And I really hope you hear as strong as I could tell you this morning, uh, please believe that is, it's just Jesus. That's it. It's Jesus that will transform. It's Jesus that will make us alive. It's Jesus that will 
will grow us and, and it will it's Je- it's just Jesus, that's it. It's not Jesus plus you do something else. It's it's just Jesus. That's it. Paul mentions a few different things that the legal legalist were trying to pr- promote. He gives a few. One was just traditionalists, people who adhere to following certain customs and practices as a way to grow closer to God. He called out people who were ascetics, people willing willingly embracing lowliness or suffering to enhance the appearance of just piety. Meaning these were people who believed if they had enough physical suffering, it would add to their spiritual, you know, God would find them more favorable. If you ever saw the movie The Da Vinci Code, think of the, the albino guy who just kept beating himself. Paul speaks against worship of angels, people who just had this excessive uh, preoccupation with, with worship of angels. And that's, the preoccupation was with the appearance of just being really spiritual. He calls out people who just... These who walk around saying we have these great uh, these great visions of of what God is and what and it's secret to us you can't know them but if you do this then you can. This is what Paul has to say about those who promote Jesus plus message, meaning Jesus plus. This is what he says to these people who promote that Jesus plus message. Don't let them judge you. Don't let someone else judge you. If you walk out of here today and you believe with all your heart it's just Jesus, do not let anyone ever judge you because you don't adhere to their custom, their rule, their tradition. It is just Jesus and Jesus alone. Paul says clearly in 2.16, do not let them judge you. He says they are chasing shadows. They are people who are literally chasing shadows. They're not seeing the real thing, which is Jesus. He says that in verse 17. He says, don't let them disqualify you. They've come up with man-made rules. Don't let them disqualify you because you don't adhere to their man-made rules. It says that in verse 18. He says they've lost connection with Jesus who is the head. If you want to grow, you stay connected to Jesus. If you're wondering why you're not growing, why you're not looking different, why you're still in that same pattern, it's a good chance you've lost connection with the head and you've stayed connected with rules, regulations, he says, and he says that in verse 19. Uh, the next thing, don't submit to rules that lead to death. Follow the ones that give life. These rules that they were coming up with, they don't bring life. They still lead to death. They still lead to sin. And finally, he says these rules, regulations, they don't lack any, they lack any value, meaning they just don't help get to the heart of the problem. And he says that in verse 23. Now, why is the path of legalism faulty, uh, Paul asks? Well, the rules, regulations are man-made, man-centered, focused primarily on appearance, and they have no power to transform and make us alive. Only Jesus can do that. Paul spends eight verses highlighting what will wreck a church and will wreck a life of a Christian. We don't follow legalistic rules. We don't follow legalistic traditions. We don't follow man-made. We follow Jesus. Jesus is the one, the only one that we follow. Not just to start our faith, but to sustain our faith. To bring us to God. That's it. Jesus is our transformation. Jesus is the one who makes us alive. And Jesus is the one that we follow. Last quote from Tullian. He says this. When all is said and done, 
these various rules and practices, all the rituals and disciplines, all the latest methods and techniques and procedures and approaches in spirituality that everyone's buzzing about, all those things are useless. External conformity like that can never bring about internal transformation, ever. Outside cleanup can never achieve inside cleanup. External rule-keeping doesn't touch the source of sin or temptation. It doesn't penetrate the source of sin. Paul reminds us here are the desires of the heart, and, the, and external rule-keeping can't fix that. He goes on and says, If the focus is on what you must do instead of what Jesus has already done, it's anti-gospel. Since the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, rules, regulations are never the solution. Jesus is. I really want you to catch that. Since the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, rules and regulations are never the solution. Jesus is. I asked you at the very beginning of this message, um, what was your life like before you met Jesus? My hope, if you don't remember the details, that's okay, but my hope would be, I don't know, remember a lot, but I, I do know this, my life is, is, is very different. It's radically different. And it's not because I've done something, it's because it's because of Jesus. He's at work in my life. There's a transformation that's taken place. The sinful nature has been cut. I am now alive to God, not dead to God. I'm alive to God. My sins have been completely forgiven, past, present, and future. And I'm, I'm not confused about the one I'm following. It's, his name is Jesus. He's not a rule. He's not a regulation. He's not a tradition. He's not a custom. He is the God-man. He is the one that I'm following. My hope is that your testimony today is I'm different. But you know what? I hope by the time you come back next week, your testimony would be, you know what? Jesus is he's, he's at work in my life. And my life is now different this week, even more so than it was last week. Why? Because of Jesus. I'm going to finish and just give you the opportunity to spend some time praying. And um, as we pray, uh, if you're not a Christian, uh, and I really believe why you even came today was so you could hear uh, this part of Colossians chapter 2. Your reality, if you're not a Christian, is that you are dead, meaning you are separated from God. Left to pay an incredible debt. My heart for you would simply be this. If you are not a Christian, that today would be the day that you claim Christ as God. That you would place your faith in Jesus and who He is, that God's Son came for us. That what He did for us in His sinless life what he accomplished for us on the cross and in his resurrection is what makes us right with God, makes us alive to God. If you are not a Christian, today you become a Christian. Today is the day you ask Christ to come and dwell you by faith. Ask Christ to come into your heart to forgive all of your sins, to make you the man, the woman that he desires you to be. And if you are a Christian, then my hope as we spend some time praying, as we get ready to celebrate communion, as we just continue in worship, that your prayer is just simply, Jesus, thank you for doing what you did. Thank you that it's you that's transforming me. Jesus, thank you that it's you that's made me alive. And Jesus, by your grace, enable me to keep following you.